I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. We're back there this morning. And Hebrews 6, beginning at verse 9, is uh, where we will return to after we've been away for a couple weeks. But hopefully I'll be able to bring us right back into the flow of what we've been learning and growing from the kind of sin that we want to work on in our lives from this text and to avoid if you're not falling prey to this or to, um, again, give ourselves to God for his mercy if we are falling prey to this sin. It's the sin of sluggishness. Perhaps you've not thought about that sin in a while, but being slothful, being a sloth. If you've ever seen the animal that's in the tree, the sloth, we don't want to be slothful. It's verse 12. It's the end of our little paragraph. So that you may not be sluggish, dull of hearing is another um, way to put that. Sluggish in the ears. The British-born writer Henry Farley, a non-theologian and reluctant unbeliever in 1978, published a then popular book titled The Seven Deadly Sins Today. This is today of the 70s. He devotes a chapter to the Latin word acedia, better known as sloth. And this is what he says. He says, children are too idle to obey. Parents are too sluggish to command. Pupils are too lazy to work. Teachers are too indolent to teach. He's a social critic. Priests are too slack to believe. Prophets are too morbid to inspire. Men are too indifferent to be men. Women are too heedless to be women. Doctors are too careless to care well. Shoemakers too too slipshod to make good shoes. Don't know where that was coming from. Writers are too inert to write well. Street cleaners are too bored to clean streets. Shop clerks are too uninterested to be courteous. Painters are too feckless to make pictures. Poets are too lazy to be exact. Philosophers too faint-hearted to make philosophies. Believers are too dejected to bear witness. Now, Farley admits that these are sweeping generalizations and judgments. But before we just dismiss all of this as sweeping, he says, why are our societies spending so much time trying to correct all these things? Well, what would he say now? (laughs) All this is fixed, right? Well, wrong, because sloth is a spiritual issue. It's not a societal issue. Society can try to curb this issue, but society is never going to cure this issue. It can't. It can't. Our society is creating a religion of sloth, of sorts. It's in to be lazy. It's in to be relaxed, to be at ease, to find ways to beat the system or work the system instead of work in the system, right? Work is out. Ease is in. We want things to be easy for us. And technology has made things easy for us, but it is a culture of ease and tolerance. And here's a word for sluggishness, indifference, Indifference. Now, I'm not saying that people don't pigpile on the latest cultural problem or ill in society, and people do it very boldly from behind their computer or on their cell phones, right? They'll tear right into that in social media and say their thing, but or perhaps protest in a in a in a 
vent protest, like to show up, but to really work on something in our culture, to really put sweat into something is not in. That's because at the root, being sluggish or slothful, whether on a societal level or within the Christian church, is sin. And the most dangerous place to be sluggish, according to Hebrews 6, is inside the church. Let me take it deeper. Inside the heart. Let me take it deeper. Inside your heart. That's the most dangerous place to be dull and dull of hearing, is inside. Hebrews is going inside. It's been working in terms of the experiences that are felt across the church on the outside. But now he's saying, look, those experiences will never be enough to save you. Being enlightened, being, being um, aware of the Holy Spirit, seeing the power of God as verses 4 through 8 talk about. These experiences where you see powers, you see salvations, you see things happen. You'll see the testimonies and the water of baptism and it will move you. But if you're only moved by these things outwardly and not inwardly, then you're not transformed at all. And you are very vulnerably susceptible to being sluggish or dull of hearing. Drifting, as Hebrews chapter 2 talks about, drifting away from such a, such a wonderful and powerful salvation. Forgetting to hear, being slow of hearing, chapter 5, verse 11. I have much to say to you, but it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Now, to be dull of hearing does not mean that you are not a believer, as we're going to see in this text. He's talking to believers. He's just saying that it's dangerous to be dull of hearing. And that there are wheat in the church, there are believers in the church, there's seed that produces fruit, believers in the church, but then there are people who are the tares in the church. And the tares never persevere. If you want to rhyme it, the the tares never persevere. And they don't, they don't keep going. They don't keep going. The church is filled with people who are dull of hearing, either as a believer who's vulnerable to to just sitting on the sidelines and being ineffective spiritually and filled with people who are dull of hearing, who are unbelievers, who are apostatizing and falling away. And and Hebrews is kind of the winnowing fork, trying to, to, to part out the wheat from the tares. This isn't something for us to judge. It's not for us to look at people and say, you're a tear, you're a wheat, you're a this, you're a that. This is a text for us to examine our own selves and to look within and say, am I dull? And why am I dull? Am I sluggish? And why am I sluggish? Am I indifferent to the things of God? And why am I indifferent to the things of God? That's what this text calls us to. Sluggishness is a moral sin in the Bible. Proverbs 6, 6, go to the end, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Proverbs 6, 11, and poverty will come upon you like a robber, like an armed man. Proverbs 10, 4, a slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Proverbs 10, 5, he who gathers in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. Jesus' parable of the talents, remember the servant who buried his talent was condemned as a wicked, lazy, another word for being sluggish, servant. You're a lazy person. Indifference is 
dangerous. It's dangerous to be dull. Well, what this text provides is something more positive than the warning. Uh, It's an admixture here where uh, the verses preceding, verses 1 to 8, bring one of the most severe warnings in all of the New Testament. It's the severest warning that we have. You can hear all these things. You can experience all these things. You can quasi-believe all these things, but not savingly. And find yourself harder and turned off to the things of God. As I put a couple weeks ago, immunized against Christ taking you over. Because you've heard a little, but you really didn't believe it savingly. Our church will come to life life if we understand and grasp a text like this. I'm telling you. What does it mean to go all the way in our faith where we say, I believe And I'm going to believe even more at a greater level. That's what this is calling us to. And here are buffers provided, buffers against the sin of spiritual indifference, buffers against being sluggish. The first buffer is, I put as observations, observations. What does that mean? Verse nine, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things things that belong to salvation. The, I title verse 9 as observations in this sense. Hebrews 13, 7 and 17 speak of spiritual leadership, obeying spiritual leadership, encouraging spiritual leadership, being willing to submit under spiritual leadership. Verse 9 is of our text in Hebrews 6 is a verse to say a spiritual leader is observing something about you and then is giving you affirmation that you are truly saved. These are affirmations in verse 9 that this church needed to hear. They've just heard a very severe warning, and now the shepherd is coming in and saying, now, I know that's true, and this is a dangerous thing that people within the church fall prey to, where they harden up to the word of God, but I'm going to give you some encouragement here that... I have made enough, I've had enough um, time with you, experience with you. I've observed you enough to now say this about you. Though we speak in this way, though I'm not taking back anything I've just said in terms of if someone hardens up and falls away, it will be impossible to restore them again to repentance. Someone can truly harden up to the point of no return. But though I speak in this way, yet in your case, Beloved, we feel sure of better things that belong to salvation. What are the better things? This is the counterbalance to what has just been spoken of, counterbalancing the dire and horrifying judgment that falls on some, but he's saying of this church will not fall on them. What are these better things? These are the things that, are internal fruits as opposed to external experiences. Again, if you look at verse four, being enlightened, tasting the heavenly gift, sharing in the Holy Spirit, tasting the the goodness of the word of God, the powers of the age to come, all those things are experiences that believers and unbelievers share in common if they come to church. They're experiencing those things. But something has to be 
observed on a deeper level to give this kind of affirmation, being sure of something better. If he, let me ask this question, verse nine, if he's sure that there are better things regarding their salvation, then why did he give this warning in the first place? What does a warning do for a believer? You know what a warning does? It ignites the faith that's already there to really get going. A warning for an unbeliever in the church typically has one of two responses. A warning within the church where an unbeliever is sitting there typically goes like this. They say, well, that's not about me. I'm just going to ignore that right now. That's way too severe. That can't be about me because I have fire insurance. My mom told me I had it or my dad told me I had it. My pastor from whenever said I have fire insurance. I'm good. I'm not going anywhere. When I die, I'll go to heaven or whatever. That's what a warning does to an unbeliever or a warning for an unbeliever will strike them in such a way where they are paralyzed and terrified in dreadful fear. They're either blase or they're terrified. Sitting there going, woe is me. There's nothing I could do. And they realize they cannot save themselves, but they have not yet trusted Christ who can save them. So they get locked up in paralysis. These are the two outcomes of an unbeliever. They have guilt and doubt and fears. But a believer instead will hear a warning like this and will fight. It stirs something within them where they ignite. The ignition switch is is thrown and they say, you know what? I'm going to fight and I know I'm sinful and I know I have things to repent of and I know I'm dull of hearing and I, I know that I've experienced things that have been powerful but then grown cold immediately after. I know that, but I'm a believer. I believe, help my unbelief. That's what a believer does when they see a warning. So a warning is not a bad thing. A warning is actually a good thing. When you hear examine yourself to see if you're in the faith, you say, all right, I will do that. I will do that. I'm going to persevere. It's the coach on the sideline saying, pick it up, pick it up. That's what is going on here. This is no mere bluff charge or manipulation tactic. This is to spawn faith. And ultimately the tares will be exposed as the wheat grows Because time and truth go hand in hand, right? Over time, the truth comes out and reveals where people are spiritually or are not spiritually. Be sure your sin will find you out, Numbers 32. It's not our job to ultimately cast judgment on people. We do exercise church discipline. We will put people out of the church who are um, sinfully corruptive in their own lives or within the church. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. We understand that. We, want, we do that, though, as a means to purify the church in obedience, but also as a means to pursue people and put people out so that they will have restrictions on the blessings that come from being in church. Because without those blessings, then they are like the prodigal found with the, the, in the you know, swine, the pigs with the pods and saying, man, this is no way to live. I want back in. And so I need to repent. 
That's why 1 Corinthians 5 says that we see people in stage four discipline as a so-called brother. We don't know where they are spiritually. We don't know. It's not our place to ultimately judge people, but it is our place to be discerning. Ultimately, we're discerning ourselves. He calls them beloved. Don't miss that word in verse nine. It's used 60 times in the New Testament, nine times regarding the relationship the father has with his son, his beloved son. Here, it's used one time in the book of Hebrews, the entire 13 chapters of Hebrews, one time, beloved. It's a term of endearment, affection, and family intimacy. He's saying you are beloved. A.W. Pink said, I cannot really love a brother with the gospel love which is required of me unless I have a well-grounded persuasion that he is a brother. And this author knew that these in the body of Christ, as far as he knew, were brothers and sisters. So how certain was he of their salvation? He says, we feel sure of better things. We're certain it's convictional. Romans eight thirty eight. for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present or to come, nor powers, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. There's certainty here. There's a security of the salvation of these who are under the hearing of the word. Philippians 1, 6, I am sure of this. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. What are the better things? What are these fruits or manifestations that are found here? Well, if you look back at chapter 5, verse 11, and kind of get a running start, you see that these are the spiritual experiences from the inside from the inside. These are the better things. If you look at verse 12, uh, these aren't milk drinkers. These are people who are living on solid food. These are not infants, but mature. These are not um, inexperienced people in righteousness, but people who are being perfected in righteousness. They're people who have moved on from repenting during ceremonial acts and repenting in the heart for life to God. They've understood that the once for all sacrifice is their sacrifice and they are regenerated. They have a faith that works. Remember James 1? Faith without works is what, people? What is it? Dead, dead. Say, I believe. Maybe that's just superficial if you don't have something that flows out of your belief. You show a person's faith by their works. I think it was John Calvin who said, we're saved by faith alone, but the faith that we're saved by is never an alone faith. It always produces works. So we're working from the inside out here, not the outside in. It's never the reverse. And this is the observations of a shepherd, things that belong to salvation. I see these in your life. Now, verse 10, second buffer is affirmations. The writer affirms a God-centered promise in their life. There's a lot of promises that are made by people and parents and brothers and sisters and friends. What you want is a promise that's anchored in God himself, right? That's an unbreakable promise. And that's what this author does. He starts with God. He says, for God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in the serving, 
in serving the saints as you still do. I'm going to make sure I time myself here because I'm not even halfway. It's very important. You, you don't want to miss the gold that's in this text. The author is affirming that they served and that they still serve, but he anchors this affirmation in God. He's not saying that I'm affirming you as your shepherd now. He's moving to a higher court and saying, listen, the reason you can know that you are a Christian who will persevere is God is putting his stamp of approval on you. It's God who is not unjust, adikaios, unrighteous. God is not unrighteous. A lot of people fear the justice of God. They say, well, one day God's going to gavel down on me and I'll be under the justice or the judgment of God. Not for the believer. For the believer, the justice of God is sweet. It's mercy. God is just. God is righteous. How righteous is he? He's so righteous that he'll always keep his promise based on himself. God, who cannot lie? It's impossible for him to break this promise. He sees what you do, both good and bad, but he sees God glorifying fruit where you're serving as worship and God will not forget that. That's what he's saying. God is not unjust so as to overlook your work. It's an affirmation that he's, that God is basing it on his own character. He would have to contradict his own nature to forget the fruit that he sees in your life. Look down to verse 13. I don't want to steal my thunder of next week, but it says, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. Do you remember that? He put Abraham to sleep. He said, cut the animals, cut the birds in half, and then basically took Abraham out of the equation and said, look, I'm going to make this Abrahamic covenant, this promise that ultimately is the Old Testament gospel going into the New Testament, where all the families of the earth shall be blessed, where every tribe, tongue, people, and nation will come around the throne of God. All of that was anchored in God's promise, swearing to himself, saying, I'm not going to break it because I'm putting myself up as collateral. Do you see that? God who cannot lie, God who cannot die, is consistently going to keep this promise. James 1.13, this is where there's a warning where people were beginning to doubt God because the trials that were coming down, meaning to redeem and give life-giving sanctification. Ultimately, when people stop exercising faith in their hearts, they harden up and they go, ah, this trial now is turning into a temptation. It was good from God. Now it's tough inside and sin in my heart. And in verse 13, it says, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. Don't blame God for that, for God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. How do we know that? Because each one's tempted and lured by his own desire. Ultimately, the text says that no sin can come from God or go to God. And verse 17 says, God is a good gift giving God with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. When life is hard, when life is tough and all of our lives are tough, we don't want to doubt the character of God. 
We don't want to doubt the character of God that he loves us because God doesn't change. We're the ones who change. We're the ones who shake like leaves on the tree, right? We're the ones who are freaking out, not God. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If he says he loves you, he loves you. If he says he's there, he's there. If he says he's working all things together for the good, he's working all things together for your good to make you like Jesus. That's who God is. God is not unjust so as to forget the good that's happened in your life. He's not going to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name and serving the saints as you do. What does that mean? It means that God sees it all. Remember in Luke 12, 6, not five sparrows sold for, or not five sparrows sold for two pennies and not one of them is forgotten before God. God sees the sparrow. He knows it all. And he sees your works of love. This works of love is, as verse 10 puts it, it's shown for his name in serving the saints. Look at that phrase, serving the saints. This is the idea of being like a waiter. Serving is like a waiter, someone who's waiting tables. It's serving saints, holy ones, those who are hagiadzo, set apart. You're serving people within the beloved. He sees that. Every time you serve someone behind the scenes, it's not really behind the scenes with God, right? God sees that. He knows that. He loves that. There's a lot of trends today that talk about meeting the needs in our culture. And I'm not going to take up the mantle of uh, the debate on social justice, what's going on out there versus what we should be doing in here. But I do want to say this. The world sees our love for one another and evaluates the genuineness and authenticity of the gospel based on how we treat each other. It's like a child watching a marriage When mom and dad are doing this and are close and loving, then that vindicates the genuineness of the household, right? It makes the home authentic when mom and dad are loving one another. It makes marriage attractive to a child. When the world sees how we treat each other, if we are unified, according to John 17, um, when we're unified, when we're together, when there's a oneness, then the world believes, They will know we are Christians by our, what? Jesus t-shirt? No, by our love, by our love, one for another. They do. We want the world to look at us and say, it's good in there. I was reading surveys this, this week on how Alaska is the most dangerous, according to polls and surveys, 2019, we're the most dangerous state in the union per capita and probably the most dangerous city. That's not something that we should say, well, we should be proud of that. No, it's dangerous. It's scary. What we can say, though, is we want to be a strong, equally strong, if not more strong, contrast of love inside here and safety inside here. A culture in here where people can come to and feel safe, can feel served. What fuels and energizes this kind of service that God himself will vindicate, will put his character on the line for? What is God excited about? Well, look at the kind of service and don't miss this. This is where the gold is. It's your work and the love that you have shown 
for his name in serving the saints, for his name. The name of God means all of who God is. Whenever you see something in terms of God's name in the Bible, it's talking about all of the full orb nature of God, all of the attributes of God, all of those that are communicable, those that are like us and the incommunicable attributes of God. God is incomprehensible. God is infinite. God is eternal. He has no beginning and he has no end. All of who God is, is what is being spoken of here. People who serve in this way are serving for the glory of God, not for themselves. There's a lot of reasons to serve, right? You serve because there's a need. I see a need and I want to meet the need, right? You know, you go, I, you know, there's, if, if I don't do it, nobody else is going to do it. Or, hey, that looks like a fun club to serve in within the church. I just want to do it. I want to do something. I want to be involved. Not all of that is wrong. But service that God pays attention to, that's worship, is theocentric. It's God-centered, not man-centered. Service that gives you joy, where you have a lot of gas in the tank to run on, is where you go, I'm doing this for God. There's a lot of false bifurcation, a lot of false ideas regarding worship. You know, worship is just singing, which I really appreciated the singing today. It was great. Not just as it was produced up here, but as it was felt and collaborative out here. It's great. Giving is worship, right? Hearing the word of God, teaching is worship. Living our lives is worship. And every time we decide to humble ourselves and esteem someone higher than ourselves and put on the apron of a slave and get down and wash someone's feet, That's worship. That's worship. That's service. And that's what God himself pays attention to. It's all kinds of reasons to serve, but we need to serve because of God's glory. Whatever we do, we do all to the glory of God. It's worship. It's worship that had been shown forth. Romans 9, 17 uses the same word. For this purpose, I have raised you up regarding Pharaoh that I might show my power in you, Ephesians 2, 7, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in the kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. 3 John 1, 7 is a great cross-reference to this. 3 John, it's about missionaries. That's what that one chapter book of the Bible is all about. It's about missionaries and how they were taken care of the hospitality of missionaries and how someone within the church, a leader kind of self-pronounced leader and dictator named Diotrephes was, was putting the stiff arm against the missionaries was blocking missionary service. But John, the aged apostle came in and said, no, as a church, you were serving these missionaries those who had gone out for the sake of the name, 3 John 1, 7, they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. In other words, nothing from the world but the church. So we have observations. We have affirmations. And then another buffer against sluggishness. You need to be observed by leaders. You need to hear the affirmations and promises of God. And then thirdly, there are expectations laid on Christians. Verse 11. And we desire each one of you to show 
the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, expectations. It's a transition here from a God-centered service, which we always need to have, to now man's responsibility. That's the biblical balance of God's sovereignty, God's rule in our lives, what he's doing, and then what we need to do. The Bible always gives this balance. Someone who perseveres is someone who is fulfilling biblical expectations. There's a passion for this. Verse 11, we desire epithemia. We passionately want you to run a marathon race all the way to the finish line. That same word show is here in verse 11, verse 10. It's the, you know, the love that had been shown for his name. Now verse 11, we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness. We want this service, this God-centered service to be really manifest, to be shining forth in the church. Earnestness. This is zeal. It's devotion. Remember the repentance of the Corinthian church? First Corinthians is a letter of shame, disunity, disharmony. It's got gospel in it. It's got hope in First Corinthians. But it really is a testimony of what the Corinthians needed to repent of. And then Second Corinthians is the letter where Titus came and gave Paul the report. Hey, they have repented And so 2 Corinthians is Paul's autobiography where he's receiving persecution, but he's affirming this church as having repented. 2 Corinthians 7 is where he says in verse 11, see what earnestness, same word, this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, zeal, what punishment at every point you prove yourselves to be innocent in the matter. What is true repentance? It's verse 11. That's what it looks like to repent. Repentance is, as one person put it, being as notorious as your sin. A repentance that's as notorious as your sin. A willingness to go for it, to go all the way. And in the Christian life, there's this kind of diligence to grow, to push forward, to be earnest. Luke 139, same word is used where Mary, who had just heard from the angel that she was going to be the mother of the Lord Jesus Christ, that she was expecting the Lord Jesus Christ in her womb. She made haste into the hill country to a town of Judah to go meet with her cousin, Elizabeth. (laughs) That word haste, it's, it's a... Action word. It's the word for earnestness. He's not generic. He's very specific here. He says, each one of you. It's like a genealogy filled with names in his mind. He's saying, I want each of you to be eager and earnest. You know what this does? This dispels the idea that there are different real gradations of Christians. A Christian is someone who is earnest. And we might be falling short of that. But the true definition of a Christian is someone who is persevering and is eager for Christ. You say, no, that person over there, that is an on-fire Christian. What does that even mean? You know, I've got my insurance policy. I'm good. No. To be dull of hearing is dangerous. To be sluggish is dangerous. This calls for someone who is a marathoner 
who has hope until the end, running the race with passion. A half-hearted person leaves them very, very vulnerable, a, a drifting person. You say, you know, I don't really have an appetite for heaven. Well, if you don't have an appetite for God now in this life or heaven, then you will not, unless you repent of that, you won't be in heaven, right? If you don't love holiness now, if you don't love Jesus now, what makes you think that you'll love it there then? This calls for a full assurance. The word plerao here is the word full. It's the same word used in Ephesians 2, to be filled with all the fullness of God. Ephesians 5.18, be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. A fullness. It's used four times in the New Testament. It's a full assurance. Full assurance is Christian assurance. And some of you might be thinking, man, he's really laying it on thick this morning. You know why? Because half-hearted Christianity is so lame, right? It's a contradiction. We know God and God knows us. We know where we're going when we die. We know that we are forgiven of our sins. A half-hearted, sluggish version of Christianity is really a despondent, depressing way to be. I'm a Christian, but I feel no power in my heart. I'm a Christian, but there's nothing exciting about Jesus to me. I'm a Christian, but I have no personal relationship with the Lord. I'm a Christian, but the Bible is a boring book. That's not Christianity. Christianity is where you are stepping into the waters of full assurance and you say, I'm going to run as a marathoner. How lame is it to be on the team or think you're on the team, but you're really just on the bench. You want to be out on the floor. Well, not only are there these expectations, there are aspirations, aspirations. And that's verse 12. Verse 12 is a fruit verse. This is the fruit of having the full assurance of hope until the end. Don't miss this. Two two elements of fruit are here. One is what you're not and the other is what you are. Verse 12, so that you may not be sluggish. So if you have full assurance of the hope until the end, if you're running this marathon race, then you're not going to be sluggish. All these things are to prevent sluggishness, being dull or indifferent. Kent Hughes put it this way, said spiritual sluggishness is a danger that looms over all of us if we do not work against it for just as surely as friction will stop a train unless there is a consistent source of power or as surely as a pendulum will settle to an inert hanging position unless that mainspring urges it on moment by moment, so will each of us wind down without an assertion of the will. Now, remember this is fruit. You don't have to say, I will not be sluggish. Oh man, I will not be sluggish. Oh, Jeff, stop being so sluggish. That's not what is going on here. It's the idea of remembering what a spiritual shepherd affirms about you or what the body of Christ sees in you. That's verse nine. It's remembering that there are evidences of grace in your life. In verse 10, you're remembering God who is not unjust to forget 
that you served him and you are serving him, that there's a way to serve him as worship. It's remembering that there are expectations to run the race as a marathoner with eagerness and earnestness, with a full assurance of hope to the end. That's when you will stop being sluggish. But then secondly, there's another fruit that I don't want you to miss. Look at this in verse 12. But imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. I want you to see something. Verse 12 is a noun, a plural noun. It's not a command. I don't want you to miss that. Something that if you just read it on first glance, you might miss. It's the Greek word mimetai. It does mean to be like someone. First Corinthians 11.1 1 is a command of this word. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. It's true that we are supposed to follow godly Christians as our examples. We are. We're supposed to follow Paul's example as he followed Christ. We are. But this is not what it's doing here specifically. The text here is saying, if you are not sluggish, if you are marathoning, then you are going to be imitating other people. It's what's going to be happening in your life as a fruit. Why make such a big deal about that? Well, it's the difference between saying, all right, I'm looking for someone to imitate and saying, no, I'm running the Christian race perseveringly and suddenly I'm looking around and I'm seeing other runners with me who I'm imitating and who are imitating me. That's what's going on. The old adage, birds of a feather, what? Flock together. Look, if you love Christ, if you love his word, if you love his will, you're serving others, you're theocentric, you have an eagerness to run this race, if you have an affection for the Lord Jesus, other people who have those same, same affections are going to be around you. They're going to want to be like you. You're going to want to be like them. And you're going to fan this flame together in a life of imitation. People hang around people. They gravitate towards people who are like them. I'll never forget being confronted as an unbeliever that I did not like being around other Christians. And that was sad to someone who was observing that in my life. And I was like, oh, I'm fine. But inside I'm going, right? Outside, oh, it's all good. That's what you do, right? We put on a good face, but inside we're stabbed to the heart if the Lord's working. He was working on me. And as I grew and became born again and then grew in my affection for the Lord, I was around other believers just automatically. And that's what's going on here in the text. Abraham in the Old Testament feels like an old friend and Christ feels like a very natural best friend, right? According to a magazine called The Proceedings, the U.S. Naval Institute produces um, the June issue of 1989. It's a monthly magazine where a commander named Eric Berryman wrote an article titled Strange Things Happen at Sea. Let me read you an excerpt from it. The USS Astoria, class CA-34, was the first U.S. cruiser to engage the Japanese during the Battle of Savo Island, a night action fought 8-9 August 1942. Although she scored two hits on the Imperial flagship Chokai, the Astoria was badly damaged and sank shortly after noon, 9 August. About 0200 hours, a young Midwesterner signalman, third class, 
Eglin Staples was swept overboard by the blast when the Astoria's number one eight-inch gun turret exploded. Wounded in both legs by shrapnel and in semi-shock, he was kept afloat by a narrow life belt that he managed to activate with a simple trigger mechanism. Do you want me just to stop there? Just kidding. Okay, all right, here we go. At around 0600 hours, Staples was rescued by a passing destroyer and returned to the Astoria, whose captain was attempting to save the cruiser, cruiser by beaching her. The effort failed, and Staples, still wearing the same life belt, found himself back in the water. It was lunchtime. Don't know why he put that in there. Picked up again, this time by the USS President Jackson, AP 37. He was one of 500 survivors of the battle who were evacuated to Numea. On board the transport, Staples, for the first time, closely examined his life belt that had served him so well. It had been manufactured by Firestone Tire and Rubber Company of Akron, Ohio, right? And bore a registration number on it. Given home leave, Staples told his story and asked his mother, who worked for Firestone, You see where this is going about the purpose of the number on the belt. She replied that the company insisted on personal responsibility for the war effort and that the number was unique and assigned to only one inspector. Staples remembered everything about the life belt and quoted the number. It was his mother's personal code and affixed to every item she was responsible for approving. Nearly 80 years prior, a mother in complete anonymity, right? Doing a wartime job, inspecting belts, was making sure her soon-to-be shipwrecked son would survive, other, would survive otherwise certain death. It's amazing. The Christian life as we serve might seem to be anonymous, right? But God's not unjust to forget what you're doing as you do something in secret in the wartime effort called Christianity, fighting the good fight of faith. God sees it all. He knows it all, remembers it all, and doesn't forget. It's Christian service that's dedicated to the name of God. And your Christian service is affecting the marathon race of everyone else. Do you know that? Stuff that we may never see, but God sees. So our job in this church for his glory is to run as a marathoner and serve him for the sake of the name. And that, in doing so, is imitating the Lord Jesus Christ.